Hey there, listeners. It's Brian. Uh, for Halloween, we're going to do a listener appreciation episode again, like we did a few months back. So we're going to ask y'all a few questions and read your responses on our episode. Last time we just did it on social media, so I know we left out those of you that listen but aren't on social media. So I'm going to read the questions right now before this episode starts. And you can email us your answers at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. So here we go. What's one movie you try to watch every Halloween season? I know everybody asks that all over Twitter and stuff, but but tell us and we'll read your answer. Uh, which horror villain do you think would make for the best Halloween costume but might be hard to execute? What's a Halloween tradition you do every year outside of movies or trick-or-treating? What is a Halloween costume that you purchased or created yourself that you are most proud of? And what's your favorite childhood memory from Halloween? So if you have answers to any or all of those, just shoot us your responses, uh, podcast at horrormovieclub.com, and we will read your answers on the air. And we're recording that episode probably four or five days from when this episode is released. So hurry up and get us those answers, and we can get them into our recording. Okay, enjoy the episode, guys. Bye. Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing Hellraiser from 1987, directed and written by Clive Barker, starring Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, Ashley Lawrence, Oliver Smith, and Doug Bradley. This is a movie about a cheating wife who encounters her resurrected lover and does his bidding in the hopes that he can fully restore himself before being captured by the extra-dimensional beings in his pursuit. Ashvin, first watch for you? First watch, man. I've, I've been seeing that uh, pinhead guy all over uh, since <laughs> I was a kid, and I've, I've always wondered what the deal was, so I was glad to finally watch this one. Yeah, and he doesn't appear in this movie until about, like, an hour in. I know, what the hell was that? I thought he was going to be, like, the main character, but yeah, you barely, he's, he's only in, like, a few scenes, right? Yeah, it's interesting, because he's... He's the standout, and that's what all the sequels are based off of, him and the Cenobites. But, uh, but yeah, the good, a good chunk of this movie is not about that. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, like, For better cool, or worse. Yeah, but it's pretty cool uh, visuals, though, right, on, on him? And, and, like, yeah, the I mean, he looks awesome. The Cenobites in general, I think, for the most part, looked awesome, yeah. minus one of them to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of them got the short end of that stick. <laughs> just a chubby dude in the sunglasses yeah <laughs> you miss like the memo like what you're supposed to suggest well and they like live in this world of constant sadomasochistic pain so yeah there's pinhead who's got all these nails in his face there's the chattering cenobite who has like the skin peeled away from his mouth the female Cenobite has an open wound in her neck, so they're all in, like, extreme pain, and he's just in sunglasses all the time. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry, guys, I have very high photo sensitivity. Yeah. Can't handle those UV rays. It's, I'm actually so really painful. uncomfortable right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my hell. 
Yeah, this is <laughs> this is so like uh, unstylish. It hurts. <laughs> Uh, you know, I thought this movie uh, might be a good prequel to like uh, modern day Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, speaking on the whole S and M thing, yeah, it's got some S and M themes. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just random to see that come up in a movie. I feel like we don't see that too often. Yeah, and apparently Clive Barker based some of the Cenobite design and costume design over some stuff that he'd seen in S and M bars. Yeah. And I didn't look into that more. I don't know if he was into that kind of thing or what. Um, I mean, you don't. I think show he up was in... one of the first openly gay directors, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and you don't show up at an S and M bar if you're not into it. I mean, I, I I get it. Maybe he claims he was just doing research for a film or something, but we've all used that excuse before, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, that was that was like the time I was doing heroin in the alley. Uh, <laughs> doing some research on a film. Yeah, it's just for a film, guys. <laughs> I swear I'm going to write it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is a um, $1 million budget, $14 million at the box office, not bad. And it is based off of a 1986 novella by Clive Barker called The Hellbound Heart. We have previously talked about two other Clive Barker films, Nightbreed, which was directed and written by Clive Barker, and Candyman, Written by Clive Barker, but not directed by Clive Barker. And, uh, and we'll and talk this, about that more, but I feel like you see some similarities in the directorial style. Yeah, and, and this was his first uh, directorial debut, right? This was his directorial debut, yeah. I think right. he was a little bit unhappy with how some of his written works were turned into films prior to this, so he mm. wanted to uh, be in the driver's seat. Yeah, for better or worse. Yeah. Um. Do you personally, like, uh, based on the three movies, I, I don't know, have you seen any more of his stuff? I haven't. Candyman and Nightbreed are the only other ones I've seen. I've seen, I feel like Lord of Illusions was a movie I maybe saw a little bit of or the whole thing of when I was a kid and don't remember. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about you? Uh, no, I, I, just these three. But um, I feel like I've, I get a sense of Clive Barker and yeah i'm just kind of curious like do you like this guy i feel like he's very heavy on like the fantasy side and he's very whimsical yeah very whimsical um you ever uh go to the library and like read those big like romantic novels uh that has like you know old time people like knights and stuff doing it yeah i mean i've seen the covers and honestly night both nightbreed and this a good chunk of them feel like those pulp romance novels. Yeah, that's what they were, <laughs> pulp romance novels. Yeah, and it, it's weird because C- Candyman's also, like, I guess, at, a heart, at its heart, maybe a romance. Uh, well, not so much, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there is a romance story. and the, Yeah, you could call it the backbone of that. Okay. Sure. Or the un- undertone. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting, it, like, how uh, different the feel is between these two movies that he directed versus the tone in Candyman. Yeah, I think that Candyman is above these other two films, in my personal opinion, and I do think that's because he didn't direct it. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think this might be a case of someone thinking they can do everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are 10 films in this franchise, which is more than I thought. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and there was one last year in 2018, and apparently a Hellraiser TV series has been greenlit. Oh. Interesting. I thought, um, that's interesting. I, I thought those were supposed to be a Hellraiser Judgment Day or something. 
coming out, but then it's just like it has gotten stalled and isn't coming out anymore. Yeah, there was supposed to be like a Hellraiser reboot or something. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, that stalled. I thought the one that came out last year was called Hellraiser Judgment. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I, I should have listed all those out, and I didn't. I kind of slacked on this one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I figured I'll, I'll have to look that up, too. Yeah. But yeah, as we said, even though they don't show up until an hour into the movie, the legacy of this film is definitely the Cenobites. Yeah. And they are noteworthy, like the creature design. Yeah. And their backstory a little bit, like the mythos behind them, is it's cool. Yeah, it is it's pretty unique, and uh, yeah, gives yeah. the movie a lot of character. And I think there are a lot of horror fans who really are very fond of this movie. Yeah, it seems pretty highly regarded. Yeah. And it's funny because there are these little, like, microcosms of horror fans. Like, I think we're all, everybody has their own taste in movies, but some people really want a story, and some people really like something imaginative, and some people are really into creature design and special effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a feeling this film might really appeal to the folks who are very into creature design. Sure. Uh, And there's a lot of people who are into horror because it, there's a lot of queer horror fans too. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if this movie is kind of important to them, and maybe all of Clive Burker's work might be important to them. Him being like one of the first openly gay horror directors, but yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, this one definitely has like a lot of like sexual undertones to it. Um, it yeah, d- definitely pushes the the boundaries quite a bit, especially I imagine in the 1980s. Uh, so yeah, maybe you're right. Right, or even if you're not from, if, if you don't consider yourself like part of the LGBTQ community, like if you feel kind of repressed in your life and you yeah. see this movie, it could open up some things. Yeah, I know it did for me. <laughs> you have nails in your face right now, don't <laughs> <Yeah>. you? <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and sunglasses on. And sun- yeah, exactly. <laughs> it hurts so much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, the more we do this, there are movies that just, they don't strike my fancy, but you never know what it is that makes a movie special to somebody. I think you're right. Yeah. But you can respect these elements that like, what, what was unique about this film? And I, I, th- I think you hit on the head. It was kind of like the, the costume design that talking about S and M and, and yeah, uh, kind of going for that scene a little bit. Wasn't something yeah. that I feel like a lot of horror movies were doing. Yeah. Uh, this is a gory movie, man. Yeah. Right. Didn't it, was, it first have an X rating? It had a, an X rating and they had to make some cuts. Yeah. It was gorier than I remembered. I, I had seen it only once before. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it gets gory like right away. Doesn't even look it does. Great. Instantaneous gore. Yeah. What is this is like the fourth or fifth movie we've seen recently where it's like just out of the gate they give it an X rating and then these uh, directors or editors are having to try to scale it back to make it an R rating. How, how are people so off on the mark? Well, it's very, there's a documentary out there, and I wish I remember what it was called about the MPAA. Mm -hmm. It's essentially just like a group of like 10 people who are like deciding what's offensive to them and what's not. Okay. Yeah. And they lean very heavily towards sex being offensive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it's, there are no hard and fast rules. I see. Okay. So it's, it's, yeah. Okay. So it's pretty easy to get to fall into the X category. And I think it's hard for a person, hard for a director and the people involved in the film to guess how it's going to be received by the MPAA. 
<laughs> I guess. Be- I guess. Because, yeah. like, think of all the money. Like, I know there's, I'm sure there's incentive in being like, we want we want to push the uh, envelope here with the gore and stuff. But think of the money and time it costs to, like, submit this to them and then go back and have to cut stuff or even maybe reshoot some stuff. Yeah, I can't imagine the amount of waste that goes inside. But you're right. Maybe they're just kind of creating more work or it's like an industry that, like built on uh, punishing directors for doing this. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard to quantify. You, it, it'd be hard to write up a set of rules over what is going to get you an X and what's going to get you an R and what's going to get you a PG-13. But I guess, yeah. I, I think it really is guesswork. Sure, yeah, to some degree. I, I don't know, though. I mean, like the things they were talking about here that made uh, it X, I, I think there was just probably some more gore. I know there were like a few extra thrusts going on in one of the sex scenes. I heard <laughs> that, like two thrusts was okay, but three made it X. Yeah, so you're saying there isn't like a list out there that says that explicitly? Yeah. The number of thrusts you can do in R versus Yeah, look up thrust in the index. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, was that another thrust as a half thrust? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think it is just like a lot of fodder that goes on, right? And a lot of times it is just like, hey, you hung on that shot for a little longer, yeah. or you included one more shot of some vivid gore there. So yeah, cut that one out. X for you. Yeah, 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 man. Anything else background wise in this movie before I go into an Ohio connection? Uh, no, that's all I had. So the main uh, catalyst here is that there's this puzzle box that opens up this dimension to, I guess maybe it's hell. Maybe it's just this other dimension of sadomasochism. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are interested in a puzzle box, you can contact Merchants of Mirth in Cincinnati. They make these really cool uh, wooden puzzle boxes that actually look really cool. Oh, cool. Do you have one of them? I don't, but I, I just found them online. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Can My buddy's get... kind of into uh, Lego puzzle boxes. Oh, nice. Uh, I've never cool seen concept. one of those. Yeah, they're cool. Boy, I've said cool about 20 times. <laughs> can we send these guys a, a bill for that advertisement? Yeah, I think <laughs> we can. In Cincinnati. <laughs> we'll just we'll just say it's, it's good. We, we got you. <laughs> Anything else before we move into the plot? Uh, no, I'm good. All right. Well, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to... I'm gonna pause this conversation for a second i think i just heard the uh, doorbell ring okay sounds good all right i'll be right back yep okay man i'm back hey everything okay yeah, it was just somebody at the door with a bunch of weird piercings asking for a guy named Frank. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Did, wait, is there someone named Frank there? No, there isn't. So I said no, and they were like, oh, and they tried to hand me a pamphlet, and I said no thanks, and as I shut the door, they were saying, but we've got such sights to show, and I just <laughs> slammed the door in their face. Nice, nice, good move. Yeah. Shutting that down. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of quotable lines in this movie. Uh, maybe we'll talk about those some more of those later. Yeah, I, I read about one or two. Uh, the problem was I, I read some of those lines uh, like a week after I saw the movie, so I, I'm gonna I, I might ask you about one or two later. Yeah, yeah, sure. We can dig into those more. Uh, anyway, the plot. So the movie starts. Oh, spoilers ahead if you're new to the show. So it starts with this hook where 
a dude buys a puzzle box in some shady looking exchange and maybe some backstreet bazaar. And the puzzle box opens this portal to another dimension, I guess. He's in this dark room. He's sweaty and shirtless. And all of a sudden, a bunch of chains appear and hook into him and, like, pretty gorily tear him apart Mm -hmm. into pieces. And then we transition into the main story, which is a recently married couple named Larry and Julia. They're moving into this new house that Larry's deadbeat brother, Frank, was previously living in for a period of time. Hey, Brian, just to jump to that opening scene again, did that remind you of The Exorcist at all? The Exorcist? What was the opening scene in The Exorcist? Uh, I feel like this father or someone is like out, and there's like uh, somewhere like the Middle East or something, oh. and there's some kind of excavation going on. And I, I felt like with this opening scene, too, like it opens with this guy. I didn't think he was in the U.S. I thought he was like in some other foreign country and buying like this artifact or something. Right, it goes for that like a little exotic and mysterious, yeah, kind of foreign aspect. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, all right, but yeah, continue. So yeah, this couple's moving into this house. It's an absolutely disgusting house. I had a hard time believing that they would want to move into this place. Yeah, like maggots everywhere. Yeah, uh, it's pretty. Yeah, it was a mess. And Larry cuts his hand while moving a couch and he bleeds on the floor in one of the rooms and this brings back to life his brother Frank who you come to piece together is the guy who was torn apart in the opening scene that happened in this house Um, so he comes back to life but he's got no skin and Julia the wife encounters Frank and she's kind of shocked and grossed out that there's this skinless dude and it's revealed that they had an affair before she married Larry. And he convinces her to bring him bodies that he can feed on to restore himself. There's apparently still feelings there between these two. That that flashback scene to their affair is yeah. so terrible. It's like he shows up in like the rain and like his, his shirt's soaked, like muscles like poking out. And he's like, well, aren't you going to invite me in? And Frank, uh, you know, this, this, uh, the, the hot brother or whatever. And she's just like taken away by him. Uh, it just felt like so like cheesy 80s. It is. It's terrible. It's cheesy and it's melodramatic. Yeah. And to add to it all, Frank's voice is overdubbed with another actor's. Oh, are you serious? I think some of the English accents they felt, I can't remember at one point, they felt were too strong. So they went back in and overdubbed with um, more American sounding accents. Oh my God. I didn't really, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that didn't seem like it fit right. That, that makes yeah, it was sense. cheesy. The dialogue is bad. Yeah. <laughs> I know people love this movie too, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so she goes about seducing a bunch of dudes at bars and bringing them back to this house so that she can kill them and Frank eats their skin or something. So she's like feeding these dudes to Frank and he's slowly getting... He's being restored. Uh, and Larry's adult daughter, who does not live with them, her name is Kirsty. she sees Julia one day bringing a man into the house. So she follows her in and stumbles upon this whole gory scene, Frank without his skin and her killing this dude as an offering. She steals the puzzle box and accidentally opens it later on in a hospital after she passes out from running away from the house and she's taken to this hospital. So when she opens the uh, gateway via the puzzle box, the Cenobites come for her. 
and she tells them she can lead them to Frank. And this was kind of so cool. Like this is like the I think you see like images of Pinhead ahead of time, like uh, like just passing. But this is like the first time you see all the Cenobites, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I liked that one. I think it's called the Engineer, the one that lives in the tunnel that was coming after her. Yeah, he just looked like a giant like Slimer type guy. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. He was pretty freaky. That was very eighties. Yeah. And not at all similar to the, I mean, that was very much a monster. There was no person behind that, but the Cenobites were just actors. Yeah, they were just like, yeah, actually people just standing around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, she comes back home to find, or back to her dad's house to find that Julia and Frank have killed her dad. And Frank is now disguised in Larry's skin. And this is when the movie picks up for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I do think that this dude like her dad not being her dad and his skin like kind of falling apart was kind of creepy yeah kind of a face off vibe kind of thing yeah uh yeah and, and you could like see all the blood like and, and i was surprised like she wasn't like hey why is your face bleeding why is your face coming off yeah i know <laughs> but she didn't pick up on that um so he tries to kill her um, but accidentally stabs Julia instead and doesn't really seem to care about it. So it's clear that Frank is just using Julia, even though Julia seems to be kind of in love with Frank. Yeah. So Julia, and the movie has been focused on Julia this whole time. She's essentially the main character mm-hmm. up until this point. Yeah. <laughs> so she's dead and gone, whatever. And Frank sucks her blood or something. And eventually the Cenobites come back and find him and they tear him apart with chains again then they go back on their deal with Kirsty, and they come for her but she figures out how to use the puzzle box like it's some sort of a laser gun or something to kill them <laughs> i don't understand how she figured that out but apparently if you press the button and like point it at them they'll go back in there yeah well, i read on wikipedia that she like did the puzzle in reverse but oh from in my mind's eye from my memory it was just like she pushed a button yeah yeah exactly so her boyfriend shows up they escape the house and they burn the box only to have this homeless guy they burn it at like a I think it's maybe just like a homeless camp mm-hmm. where there's like fires burning in trash cans um, so they burn it and then this homeless looking dude walks up and he's appeared earlier in the film and the pet shop where Kirsty works he walks up steps into the fire and takes the puzzle box and he like catches on fire and then he turns into some sort of winged demon and flies away yep. and then the film ends as it began with this same merchant from the beginning saying what's your pleasure sir and selling the puzzle <laughs> box to another dude yep and that's it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the guy answers not this film anything about this movie yeah it's a pretty simple movie I mean Mm -hmm. there's not much to it no yeah pretty pretty simple plot Uh, yeah not a lot of depth there what what did you think of like the acting all around I thought the acting was kind of rigid yeah yeah Um, that's a good way to describe it Kirsty, played by Ashley Lawrence might have been the best actor honestly the Cenobites were the best actors. <laughs> they were the most interesting characters, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, and Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead, I think plays Pinhead in maybe nine of the films. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but you're right. Yeah, the other characters I think are kind of forgettable, and uh, and even like pretty unlikable throughout the film. Yeah, I mean, Julia really is the main character for the first hour of the film, at least. Mm-hmm. And she's you can't empathize with her. She's cheating on her husband with this horrible dude, and then killing people to sacrifice. Yeah, like, and, she's, and they don't really go into her enough. She's not intriguing at all. Yeah, she's like not a human too. She's kind of like this robot that just like does really weird stuff. Or has yeah, like no she is very robotic. Yeah. Um. Yep. Pretty. pretty yeah. Weird. There's really no character to grab onto in in this whole thing except maybe Kirsty at the end, but mm-hmm. you barely saw her until the very end of the movie. Yeah, she's kind of introduced like weirdly and like a kind of a side character, and then suddenly. Uh, after that scene that she confronts Frankie or, or Frank, she becomes a little more uh, of a main character. It's weird. Yeah, she, yeah, she definitely goes from sad character to a uh, final girl pretty suddenly. Yeah, but did you notice her and her boyfriend sleep in separate beds next to each other? Do they really? <laughs> yeah, there's a scene where they go into bed and they both are in separate beds. It's it's really weird. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I don't know. You know, they're not married yet, so it's probably the thing. <laughs> in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, like we said, I mean, there are a lot of people who hold this movie in high esteem, but it sounds like neither one of us is really one of them. And I didn't see this until I was adult, mm-hmm. uh, and this is your first viewing of it, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, did you think like the graphics or the effects were pretty effective? I do. I will say that I think the special effects are great. Yeah, I didn't mind them actually for being uh, a 1980s film. Uh, I thought they held up; they weren't that bad. Yeah, really good practical effects. I mean, it's a gory, gross movie, and I, I think it succeeds on that front. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It definitely grosses you out. Yeah. Uh, oh, speaking of cheesy lines that you were talking about earlier, so I, I noticed uh, Frank kept saying, like, come to daddy really creepily. Yeah. Did that bother you? It did. <laughs> <laughs> that was really weird. Frank in general bothered me. Yeah. And I think a different character did his voice when he was well actually I'm not sure I can't tell if it was the same voice when he was skinless Frank as when he was skin full Frank in the flashbacks or or not yeah I can't tell did he say come to daddy in the flashbacks too yeah he did oh weird to to uh to the to the mom to Julia I'm pretty sure oh okay yeah wow but yeah other quotable lines uh Pinhead at one point says, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Oh, yeah. That was a good one. Pretty badass line for a, a presumably demon. Yep. I think they go into the sequels a little bit more what these people are, but mm-hmm. this movie kind of just lets... It doesn't right out come and say they're from hell. It's like a dimension of sadomasochism right. that they live in. Yep. Yeah, and that was kind of a miss. I feel like that that's like where the real story is, uh, learning more about them and like where they come from. And um, anytime they were on screen, I think the movie was like at its best. Uh, yeah, and, and and that happened so uh, rarely. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting when, kind of like the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, when the entire franchise becomes about something that was barely touched upon in the first film. But in this case, you have a book, and I'm wondering. Uh, does the book uh, deal more with the Cenobites than uh, this movie did? 
I'm guessing it did, and I have a feeling the book may have gone more into the sadomasochism themes, too. Like, there's stuff to explore there, but there really, there was, like, no theme to this movie. It didn't... Yeah. It didn't seem to have a message or yep. or anything. Yeah, that's the other thing that kind of bothered me, is, like, yeah, there's this sadomasochism uh, uh, theme, but you're, you just hear about it in talking, like, reference, like, once or twice, and they could have really used that to their advantage and showed more of, like, that aspect of torture, but... Um, I don't know, maybe they, for the rating or something, but they avoided that, which was kind of a disappointment. Yeah, but I mean, they could have even just like made that an emotional part of the plot, like or explored. Yeah, the boundaries there of like pleasure and pain, and like what it's like to n- always need more. Because Frank yep. at one point says that, like, thinking a flashback after they sleep together, he's like, "It's never enough." Yeah. Yeah, and it's just that's one line of the movie, but that could have been explored. That could have been a theme that was hammered harder. That's true. Yeah, that would have made it really interesting. Dive into that feeling more of that uh, addiction. Yeah, and because that was like Frank's story, but Frank really was. It wasn't his story. It was kind of Julia's story. <laughs> Until she just gets stabbed and <laughs> right now. So, yeah, she yeah. anticlimactically dies. And yeah. her story is just kind of like, eh, I'm an asshole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, hey, who said the line, Jesus wept? That was Frank at the end in Larry's skin, right before he was torn apart and had all the hooks in his face. Oh, uh, why did he say that line? Was you remember the context? I don't know, and that's become kind of a big line I've seen repeated on Twitter and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing I it. I think they, it's a, yeah. a verse of the Bible. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, and he just randomly like says it. Yeah, and I think it was an improv line, too. I don't think it was in the script. Oh, okay. Interesting. But I don't... The significance of it is kind of lost on me, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Sorry for all the Hellraiser fans out there. <laughs> Maybe if you watch the other nine or whatever, it, it starts... It makes sense. It starts to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe they're just saying Jesus wept as they turn off our podcast yeah. and <laughs> smash their phones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I thought the soundtrack was kind of decent, uh, if, for what it was. Um, yeah, I thought it fit like the feel pretty well of the film. Yeah. It was also, it was kind of whimsical. Yeah. Clive Barkery. And that was, uh, Christopher Young. He scored Sinister, Urban Legend, The Grudge, The New Pet Cemetery. Oh yeah. So we've talked about him before. Yeah. I, I didn't realize he was a Sinister guy. Really like that one. Yeah. That was a good one. So he's been doing stuff for a long time. Yeah. And this movie's 1987. I think Sinister was 2012. Pet Cemetery obviously was this year, 2019. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. So he's still cranking. Yeah. Cool. No, that, that was one good part. Yeah. I did like the soundtrack or mm-hmm. the score. Cool. Well, uh, let's see. Zero out of five dudes getting murdered in their tidy whities. What do you give this? Oh, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to have to go for a one. I, I really didn't enjoy this one. <laughs> Ouch, yeah. Yeah, this is just a hard one to cling on to. What about you? I give it a two. Uh, cling on to, tighty whitey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, I give it a two. Yeah. Um, I do think the end picks up and becomes more enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm in, at the end of the movie, the last 20 minutes or so I do like watching, but the path that gets us there is really a slog. Like, I could care less about what happens. It Even is. by the end, I'm like, I don't really care what happens. Yeah, yeah. But at least, like, yeah, there's some momentum at the end and things kind of pick up and you see a little right. bit more of the Cenobite. So, yeah, I, I hear you on that. 
Yeah, like in terms of a rewatch, I really don't want to watch Julia for another hour. Oh God, yeah, I don't think I could. Did what, what was her deal like? Is she? Do you know if, if that actress is that? Is she just a bad actress, or was that like some kind of direction that was given to her, like just to act like this, uh, you know, pretty like emotionally distant character? I don't know. I think I mean. There was a one million budget, and there was a lot of effects in this movie, so maybe they were just kind of casting on the cheap. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Because uh, I didn't notice anything else of significance to me, at least that she had starred in. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, I was just really surprised. I don't think I've ever seen like a character like that, and I, I couldn't tell how much of that was like the script versus, wow, she's just like a bad actress. But I, I think yeah. it's a lot. I think it was just a, a poorly written character. Maybe maybe the story is better, but yeah, yeah, that could be it. Yeah. And yeah, the acting wasn't that great either. Yeah, it could have been. She's just not an intriguing character. Right. Yeah, not a a great story there for her to act on. So overall, given uh, this was the second uh, Clive Barker directed movie that we've seen and uh, Candyman, which he didn't direct, what's your overall take on Clive Barker? I think my overall take is that I'd like to read his stories, but his direction is flawed in my opinion. I, I agree. I mean, maybe like there's more to his books uh, that, yeah, he's not able to successfully bring to the film. Yeah. And it reads better. Yeah, like yeah. Candyman was a really intriguing story and it was a well-shot, well-made movie, but both this and Nightbreed to me were just kind of silly and melodramatic at points at the same yeah. time. So you still appreciate him as like a storyteller, just maybe not a, a guy behind the camera. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd have to read the stories behind Nightbreed and, and Hellraiser. I, something tells me they'd be more interesting in print. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Well, yeah, so sorry, everybody. We're kind of down on this movie. But uh, you got anything else, buddy, before we close up shop? Uh, No, no, I'm good. All right, everybody. Well, that was our discussion on Hellraiser. Um, If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find our show, and we really appreciate it. If you want to join the discussion, you can find our social links on our website, horrormovieclub.com, Facebook, Twitter, and we also have a Discord server where you can come chat with us and a small group of horror fans. I'm having a lot of fun on there talking to our little group. So if you want to come join us, please do so. Uh, we announce next week's movie on Facebook and Twitter, so follow us there so you can watch the movie ahead of time. Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. Check her out on Etsy.com. We now have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash horrormovieclub.com. If you want to throw us a buck every month and support us financially in any way you can, uh, you'll gain access to some bonus content that way. And until next time, if you're murdering people at the bidding of some jerk you're having an affair with, you might want to stop to reconsider everything about your life. (laughs) 